And if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to hang out this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we are beginning a new series this morning where we are looking at doctrines of Scripture. And we're going to be going through this uh, for the entire summer. And then the plan is, Lord willing, to kind of work through the philosophy or how we function as a church in light of the doctrines that we've covered. Uh, and then we're uh, actually going to go back and go through the book of First Timothy and work verse by verse through that. Um, but as we work through doctrines, um, the doctrinal statement that we're putting forth as Deer Park's statement of faith is called the 1689 um, Confession of faith, and it's an old uh, historic confession of faith. And what I aim to do is certainly not preach through the confession of faith. I want to preach through the Bible. But as I preach through the Word, I'm going to show you how uh, this statement of faith kind of synthesizes uh, the key doctrines here. And so, uh, for many of us, the 1689 may seem like it's quite comprehensive. Uh, but I think what often we forget about is the Bible is a really, really thick book. It's, there's a lot there. God spoke it into existence, and all of it matters. And so what uh, I would love for local churches to do is to adopt a statement of faith that attempts to uh, summarize, to systematize even, uh, the doctrines contained in the Scripture and make orthodox, old, historic uh, conservative statements regarding what uh, the church for thousands of years has believed uh, about uh, the contents of Scripture. And so when you think about the 1689 in terms of how thick the Bible is, uh, we can't help but walk away thinking, oh, that's not that, that's not that comprehensive uh, when we compare it next to the Scripture. Uh, but it is an important um, uh, document, and when compared to modern-day statements of faith that are reduced to eight simple sentences, uh, I think we should see uh, the necessity for uh, a more comprehensive statement of faith about what it is that we believe. Uh, worldliness, as I put in the document that uh, you've been given, worldliness often creeps through vague statements of faith, and so we want to be as clear as possible about what it is that we believe the Scriptures Teach. And so this morning, uh, right out of the gate, we're going to look at and talk through uh, the Holy Scriptures. And as I go through this series, I'm not going to go chapter by chapter through the 1689. Some of this is going to be condensed. Uh, some things are even going to be omitted that I think uh, aren't necessarily pertinent to where we are presently uh, as a local church. But I would encourage you to read all of it, to ask any questions that you uh that you may have. I'm accessible to you. The elders that we're installing this evening are accessible to you. Small group leaders are accessible to you. Uh, and we also have a team of sermon question writers uh, that are putting together really good comprehensive commentary uh, for uh, that you can take into your small group. You'll be emailed a document today, actually, and I think there's some hard copies. I'm looking around for Clark because I'm not sure. There's some hard copies that are out in the lobby for those of you who uh, would rather have a, a hard copy instead of an electronic copy. But things like that are going to be published on a weekly basis to help just equip you and help move the conversation along, and, and hopefully, by God's grace, we'll all grow together. But 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, and we're going to look this morning particularly at verses 14 uh, to verse 17. And just to give you some brief context about uh, this letter, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter to young Timothy, uh, who he has commissioned to pastor a church called Ephesus. Timothy is Paul's uh, protege, if you will. And at the time of this writing, the Apostle Paul is in prison for his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's in prison writing to encourage a man who's not in prison. Right? If that doesn't seem backwards, right? But we even see in our culture nowadays, right? Uh, Our brothers and sisters in Canada, I read you a statement from one of uh, them last week uh, where we have uh, brothers, pastors, who are being uh, imprisoned in the name of uh, public health for holding church services, right? And, and those brothers, instead of despairing in a jail cell, ha- God is using to encourage other churches and other pastors. And, and so this kind of thing is normative in God's economy. We often see what we would think uh, Paul, need, we would think Timothy needs to be writing Paul to encourage Paul not to despair. But as God would have it, uh, he uses what often seems backwards to us to accomplish his good purposes for his church and for this world. And so we have Paul, a prisoner in chains, writing young Timothy, pastoring Ephesus. And there's several things that are going on culturally that I think will help us see how the Scriptures are Uh, necessary, how they're enduring, how they have authority, how they're sufficient, because the Apostle Paul commends a commitment to Scripture to Timothy in the face of all of this cultural opposition, including his own imprisonment. And so it seems that some of those who identified with the church at this writing, that uh, the, the, the letter of 2 Timothy here, that some of those who identified with the church, they've become ashamed of the testimony of Christ Jesus in public because of societal pressures. There's probably a, a temptation, if you will, not unlike today, to kind of knock off the sharp edges uh, of Christ and His Word. Christ may have become at this point in time just a bit too prickly, and we see some mentionings of that in Second Timothy chapter 1. Verse 8, this same group has also grown ashamed of the Apostle Paul. Right? Maybe Paul was being a bit too dramatic. Maybe Paul took himself and his faith a bit too seriously. So they were ashamed of Paul, and they were particularly ashamed of the Apostle Paul's chains. His chains, him being bound. The Apostle Paul was obnoxiously public about his faith, so much so he caused disturbances in the cities that he would visit and evangelize. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, the, uh, the way that many in the church felt about Paul and his chains. And then there were also those uh, at the time of this writing that wanted to appear godly, but they were, in fact, wicked. They were committed to wickedness, and they were opposed to Christ, they were opposed to Christ's church, and they were opposed to Christ's agenda. And we see that in Second Timothy chapter three, in the verse first seven verses there. And in the midst of this cultural climate, Paul gives instructions to Timothy to 
contrasted all, if you will, and we see that in our text this morning. Look down with me, verses 14 to 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, but as for you, as for you, Timothy, in contrast to all of this stuff that that he's talking about going on culturally, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then you guys are probably familiar with this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time that we have here in Your Word together as Your church. Lord, help increase our view of Scripture because Scripture has You as its author, Lord. So help us to have a high view of You. Help us to have a high fixed view on Your Word. And Lord, I pray that that would motivate the way that we live uh, and the way that we engage in our relationships, Lord, and the way that we proclaim the gospel. And so help us this morning uh, to understand, internalize, be changed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're taking notes, um, and you can shorthand this as best as possible, but... We as Christians should be antiquated and out of date, culturally speaking. We should be antiquated and out of date, culturally speaking, which is another way of saying follow the ancient paths. Follow the ancient paths. Verse 14 and 15. As for you, as for Timothy, continue what you've learned, what you firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with, and he uses the phrase, sacred writings, sacred writings, all right? Paul tells Timothy to stay grounded in the old ways. Timothy has not only been taught the faith, as we'll see from our passage, but but he's charged by Paul to hold to what he himself has firmly believed, not casually believed, but what he has had a tight grasp on, what he has made his own possession Right? It's not just any longer the faith that had been handed down from his grandmother and his mother, but this is his own faith that he experientially knows, not just intellectually knows, but it's warmed his affections, it's captivated his soul, it's caused him to hate sin, to treasure Christ, and uh, in effect has put him in this position to pastor this local church at this point in history. Paul's telling him to hold fast to what he has firmly believed, right? Timothy knows his heritage of faith to be true, right? He, he's been thrust into a culture, even in spite of what he's held and knows to be firmly true, he's been thrust into a culture, the supposedly Christian culture, that is repeatedly challenging that. If you know anything about the church of Ephesus, you kind of know some of the opposition. You even know when the Apostle Paul first plants 
the church of Ephesus, that he warns the elders that have been installed there that fierce wolves are going to come in. You see this in the book of Acts, and he tells them to be on guard, to be watchful, right? And we know that perhaps they weren't as watchful as they should have been, which occasioned uh, not just the writing of First and Second Timothy, but also occasioned the writing of the book of Ephesians as well. And so there's, there's dysfunction uh, going on even within the Christian church that's challenging the doctrines that Timothy, uh, faith handed down to him, has firmly believed. And, and so Paul's saying, continue in that. Keep going down the route, going down the road of the faith that you have firmly believed. Keep going down that old path. And we see charges like this elsewhere from Paul to Timothy as well. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Take heed of yourself, speaking again to young Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself, right? Continue in this old ancient path, right? It's the path toward life, and you'll save those who hear you, right? Preach this, proclaim this, be public about this, right? Because being committed to this is not only... um, of eternal significance for you personally, but it's of eternal significance to the people that God has entrusted to you as well. We see in Second Timothy, at the very first chapter in verse, uh, in, uh, verse 13, uh, Paul says, hold fast right, to the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. All right, Paul is, con- again, contrasting what he and Timothy are experiencing culturally with the way in which a Christian should walk, right? According to the ancient ways, according to the Scripture, one who professes uh, Christ as Lord and all that that entails, all these words in Scripture, they're to continue. They're to hold fast. They should keep heading down the trajectory that they've been heading down, right? And what they've learned and what they've believed and what's been handed down to them from trustworthy believers who have, and and this is critical, who have kept the Word of God in front of them, right? Who have kept uh, what the text says, the sacred writings in front of them, right? Timothy's charged by the Apostle Paul to continue in the way of the Word, Continue in the way of the Word. It reminds me of the, the words of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, who said in Jeremiah chapter 6, and maybe some of your minds went there, chapter 6, verse 16. It says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Right? Of course, Israel responds in a a very sad manner. It says, But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, Pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not pay attention. And and sadly, uh, that sort of hard-heartedness has continued. It was there when Paul's writing Timothy, and it's certainly here in our context as well. And so we want to, as Christians, uh, ask for the ancient paths. We want to uh, which is where the good way is. We want to walk in it, and we there find rest for our souls. But as Christians, right, or and, and, and as it relates to us uh, speaking of the ancient paths, we should know as Christians that what we're speaking about 
is Scripture, right? And so when it, when it relates to Scripture and when it relates to what Christians have confessed about Scripture <clears throat> for thousands of years, being antiquated is good. Being out of date, uh, if you will, is good. Knowing that when uh, you are confessing the living and active Word of God, you're never out of date because it's always relevant, right? Which is why we're standing here preaching and listening to the sermon and seeing the relevance of what's going on even in our context uh, today, right? And, and, and I would add that these ancient paths, and you guys know this, but they're good because a good God spoke those paths into existence and He made Himself known to us through His Word, especially His final Word, which is Christ Jesus, now, despite the, the struggles of the cultural situation and, and despite Timothy's own personal struggles to perhaps compromise, okay, from the, the societal pressures both in the church and outside the church that he's facing, um, Paul, while in chains for the sake of the gospel, he commends Timothy to go down that path of his spiritual heritage, one that, that was handed down to him from his grandmother and mother, and he calls what we see in the text, the, 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 this spiritual heritage, he calls it the uh, one that was informed by the sacred writings. The sacred writings. And in that, that text, it's referring specifically to the law of Moses. And, and the reason why that's significant for us is Timothy, he was instructed by what was already accepted as canon. It was already accepted as the canon of Scripture. This was the Old Testament was understood to be the words of God, to be Scripture. You see this over and over throughout the New Testament. You see uh, uh, when an apostle or when Christ Himself goes to preach uh, and interpret it, He goes as the Scripture says, referring to an Old Testament. And a lot of times we see um, that that Old Testament is interpreted in light of what will be um, the New Testament. Okay. And so the Old Testament was seen as the Word of God. It was seen as the very thing passed down to Timothy. And it's seen as the very thing in which Paul was instructing Timothy to continue in, right? Continue in them in the midst of a culture that's raging. Continue in them in the midst of a so-called Christian culture that's that was growing increasingly ashamed of the commitments that it required. And as we meditate together on the significance of the Holy Scriptures, we need to pay attention to why there's a struggle in young Timothy. And we need to pay attention to why uh, the Apostle Paul is in chains in the first place. We need to pay attention to why professing believers were abandoning these old paths, this commitment to the sacred writings. It's, it isn't because a commitment to Scripture was accepted in a, in a hostile culture. It's not because a commitment to Scripture is, is neat and tidy, is this neat and tidy verbal assent without any bearing on your life and, and what we're to hold the culture accountable to. It's the opposite of that. A, a, a true commitment to the Word showcases itself ultimately in a fear of God, not a fear of man. And, and it doesn't get distracted. It doesn't get distracted. It has a singular focus. And that singular focus is the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all the earth. That's the singular focus. Paul and Timothy's commitment of Scripture it had an impact on the street level. 
if you will, right? It was messy. It was a sort of spiritual brawl. It wasn't left in the academies. It collided with the culture, including the culture of a worldly church, right? A true commitment to Scripture, it puts one in the position of being uncomfortable. It puts one in the position of remembering the gospel. It puts one in a position of doing the hard work of walking in repentance. And as our text says, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training those entrusted to you in righteousness. And Timothy, as we see in chapter 4, if you were to flip over, I'm not going to do that for sake of time, had to primarily do this through the ministry of preaching. But as Christians, we need to see that this is the way in which God reconciles men and women to Himself. Therefore, we have to labor. Every Christian has to labor in this important task without falter. Every Christian has to labor in this important task with bravery and with courage. Nobody cares about a superficial commitment to Scripture. Nobody cares about that. Right? Nobody cares about a superficial private commitment to Scripture. In fact, the Bible knows nothing of that type of commitment. A commitment to Scripture is controversial, not, not because uh, we're to be unkind or mean or rude or arrogant. Right? It's controversial because it, remi- it rubs against sin nature. It rubs against sin nature. It reminds the church and proclaims to the culture that there is a God in which all men must give an accounting to. And and furthermore, it reminds the church and an unbelieving culture that there is sin to be repented of and that there's one exclusive Savior who has shed His blood for the forgiveness of those sins, which means that there's only one way to be made right with God. And when we're uh, committed to this publicly in in the midst of a culture that really despises it, when we're saying things like, all men must give an account, we're going to face opposition. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be friction. That's the type of commitment to Scripture that Paul is commending to Timothy. Not one in his closet with the lights off by himself when no one's looking. Not that. So follow the ancient paths. But secondly, you see the sacred writings. Right? And again, he's, he's talking about the Old Testament, and, and we're going to pull in the New Testament here in a minute. But the sacred writings, the Apostle Paul asserts, it makes you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Makes you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus, fifteen and uh, verse 15, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Interestingly enough, right? Again, Paul is in fact referring to the Old Testament. He says that the Old Testament makes you wise, meaning enlightened. Enlightened for salvation in Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus. And we know as a confessing church that we uh, look back at the Old Testament, they were not saved differently than us. They were saved by their faith in Christ Jesus, looking forward to God delivering on the promised Messiah, right? And we see, looking back, that that promise uh, was certainly fulfilled as God said it would be fulfilled. But how is it specifically that the Apostle Paul can make a statement regarding the Old Testament being the very thing that can make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
And it's because both of the Old Testament, and, 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 I, and you guys know we talk about this a lot, but the Old Testament and the New Testament centers on a person. And that person is Christ Jesus, right? All of Scripture pointed to Christ Jesus. Jesus Himself even taught in this way. We see in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we see Jesus preaching. It says, And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, these are the sacred writings that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. We see this modeled in the way the apostles preached. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. It says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you as the Christ. He was using the Scriptures. What Scriptures was He using? He was using the Old Testament Scriptures to prove that Christ, in fact, had to die for sins, had to be buried, had to resurrect bodily from the grave. Right? We spent time going through that in our series we just concluded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Old Testament isn't something that, that we need to uh, abolish, get away with, ignore. The Old Testament can make one wise for salvation. It was the very Bible that Christ Jesus and the apostles used to preach Christ Jesus. It's the very uh, uh, section of our Bibles that, uh, that Paul says can make one wise for salvation. Right? And, and what we have now is the New Testament that we can utilize to interpret the Old Testament, which would be the model that we see being used by Jesus Himself and by the apostles. So as conservative evangelicals, we confess that all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament is inspired by God. And not that it's just inspired by God, but that there's also a cohesiveness in that the Old Testament is directing us uh, toward Christ, pointing to this covenant of grace, is what theologians call, that was promised in the Old Testament. When you're reading the Old Testament, you see all these covenants in the Old Testament, what it's communicating to us, what it's preaching to us, is that there's this big overarching covenant called the covenant of grace, and these covenants in the Old Testament are pointing toward this covenant of grace that is ultimately concluded, accomplished in the New Testament. The Old Testament moves in a sort of crescendo in that way, if you will. Jesus Christ concluded that ultimate covenant that was preached as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God uh, promises that Christ will crush the head of the serpent. So the New Testament, it didn't make the Old Testament obsolete. Neither Testament, I would argue, stands alone on its own. Together, they make one wise for salvation. Right? The Holy Scriptures illuminated by the Holy Spirit of God makes one wise for salvation. This is how the 1689 summarizes it. Okay, This is an excerpt from the 1689. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible, infallible meaning trustworthy or sure, rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, that's general revelation, 
yet they're not sufficient. Okay, general revelation, what we observe in nature, is not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto, unto salvation. Okay? Which means we need special revelation. And we declare as a church that special revelation is the Scripture. Okay? Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal Himself and to declare His will unto the church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of that truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing. Right, What God spoke was to be committed to writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people now being completed. God's speaking um, in the way in which He spoke that would have caused the biblical writers to write the Scripture, right? Our brothers here, when we're, we're looking at the 1689, summarizing this doctrine about Scripture being sufficient and certain and infallible, right? Our brothers in the faith, with reverence for God and, and reverence for His Holy Word, crafted a carefully worded statement that, that captured or summarized well that what Christians have affirmed about the nature of Scripture right from the beginning, right? The Scripture being the special revelation from God. It's the, like I said, the only sufficient, the only certain, the only infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, right? As Paul says, the Scripture makes you wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ, right? God spoke and, and He revealed to us in His Word through chosen human authors all things pertaining to life and godliness. Your children in the back work on this catechism question. You should be able to ask them who wrote the Bible and they should be able to answer you, chosen men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right? And God inspired those chosen men to, to, to write, to communicate to us all those things which we should know. All those things which we should know. And thankfully, the God who inspired the Word, as, as we're going to look at, is also the God who's preserved His Word throughout all ages so that we can have confidence in this providential care that God's given over the Scriptures, okay? So, so let's get to verses 16 and 17. The Scripture is authored by the Holy Spirit of God and is self-authenticating and sufficient. The Scripture is authored by the Holy Spirit of God and is self-authenticating and sufficient. Right, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right, let's take the first part of verse 16 there. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Right, that's Paul's way of saying that the Scripture is, in fact, self-authenticating. Because God is its author, there's no higher authority than God. I would say that while finding older manuscripts is good, that's a good thing, and while the Bible 
holds up as an old historic book as far as evidence and reliability go, that's not the reason to accept it as God's Word, just as one doesn't really become a Christian because he or she has examined all the evidence as if God is on trial in, in some trial that they're arrogantly conducting. Really, we're Christians because God's gifted us. A gracious, good, sovereign God has gifted us with salvation. That's why we're Christians. And in that same way, we take the Bible as God's Word because the God who gifted us to be Christians is the same God who authored it. The Scriptures are God-breathed, God-inspired. Now, somebody may object and say that that is circular reason reasoning, but I would suggest that everybody appeals to some sort of final authority. And either that final authority is on you and your own changing, fallible intellect, or it's on a God-breathed, inspired document that's been providentially cared for and that we can have confidence that we're holding in our hands right now. As Christians, we stand on this book and we, we, we confess that God Himself inspired, and we confess this along with all of our brothers and sisters throughout church history, and we say this is our authority. This God-breathed book is our authority. This is our standard. This is our objective. This is our God-breathed standard. And we can have certainty regarding the contents of it. For instance, Luke, the physician, the the medical doctor, Luke, in Luke chapter 1, he compiled a reliable eyewitness account for a man named Theophilus. He did this also in the book of Acts, documenting the the spread of the early church. But Luke in chapter 1 the first four verses, he says this to Theophilus. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Remember, the Old Testament was accepted canon by the time of the Scriptures, but the New Testament was a collection of letters breathed out by God and penned by holy men that attest to the person and work of Jesus Christ and how Christ did, in fact, accomplish, fulfill uh, the Scriptures of the Old Testament. That Testament, that New Testament was written, according to Luke chapter 1, by eyewitnesses during the lives of other eyewitnesses. It's it's no exaggeration to say that there was an accepted New Testament canon during the lives of the apostles and the eyewitnesses to the life of Christ. And we see that even, uh, we see even a, a list as early as the year 140, to the time of Athanasius in in 367, the list of what was already accepted as New Testament canon. But the bottom line is this. The Scriptures are self-authenticating because God is the ultimate author. We don't have to appeal to outside sources about this because there's no authority over and above God-breathed Scripture. That's the highest authority. I would even argue appealing is as great as having extra evidences are and older manuscripts and all things like that. I'm 
by no means anti any of that, but if that's what we say we're hanging our hat on, or that's what we're hanging our faith on, then that is what we're appealing to is the highest authority, not the Scriptures themselves. Right. The 1689, he gets, gets at it in uh, this in paragraph 4 of chapter 1 in the Confession. It says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, therefore, right in light of that, is to be received because it is the Word of God. Furthermore, we know as Christians the canon of Scripture is closed. God's not breathing new revelation. Right? He breathed revelation to holy men in the first century. He does not breathe revelation now. It's all of that Scripture that, that Paul is speaking about. When Paul says all Scripture, what's in view is certainly the Old Testament, and then it's the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament in light of Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So the Old and New Testaments are God-breathed. They're God-inspired. Right? There's, there's good commentary. There are helpful documents like the 1689 that, that we have, but only the Scriptures are God-breathed, and they were once for all delivered to the, the apostles who by God's grace established through them the foundation of the Christian church, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone of the church, Ephesians 2.20. The 1689 says in paragraph 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, get this, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Right? Legalistic practices that we're so quick to adopt and treat as if they're the Word of God. Right? So the Scriptures are self-authenticating. The canon of Scripture is closed. And we see as well the Apostle Paul assert, assert the sufficiency of the Scriptures. The sufficiency of the Scripture. Paul says the Scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. Right? The word teaching there, the KJV says doctrine. Doctrine. The Scriptures are profitable and are sufficient to teach sound doctrine. Right? The Scriptures are profitable to instruct regarding the belief set forth by God. Right? What does this mean? Right? This necessitates that the Scriptures are clear. The Scriptures are clear. Right? We see Scripture described as a lamp and a light by Scripture. Right? Psalm 119, verse, verse 105. Right? We see Jesus, who's called the final Word of God in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, call Himself the light in John chapter 8, verse 12. This means that the lack of clarity that we often have is not so much on the part of Scripture that testifies about Christ as it is our lack of humility or our willingness to have our thinking conformed by the Word of God. Right? The Scripture is profitable to teach doctrine. The issue is, are we willing to open-handedly conform to what it says? That's the issue. We also see the word reproof 
reproof, right? Here it means, reproof means to bring into the light, which, hey, right, how, how appropriate is that given that Scripture is in fact the light? Scripture is in fact a lamp. Jesus Christ, who we're bringing people to, is the light of the world, right? But to reproof is to confront sin and to do so convincingly. And we do so convincingly, not by trying to confront people on sin that's not actually sin, but it's just something that we don't like what they're doing. Right? To confront someone about sin convincingly is to turn chapter and verse and to show them in love and compassion and in forbearance that they're in opposition to the King who created them. The Scripture is clear here. It, 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 in, in, it, in this reproofing work, if you will, reproving work, it exposes darkness. It exposes corruption. It exposes sin. The Scripture is profitable for this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 says, For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked, and, ex- and that's naked, just spell it out if you don't understand the accent, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Right? And this sort of characteristic of Scripture really is commended to Timothy and thus commended to the church of Ephesus. Therefore, it's commended to us to use it in such a way as to illuminate the way toward reconciliation to God. Right? That's, that's the exposing nature of what's going on when we're reproving someone by God's grace and hopefully with the bumper rails of getting the log out of our eye before we get the speck out of a brother or sister's eye. But sin, according to the Scripture, is to be brought to light. It's to be repented of. And again, Jesus is that light. Therefore, when people come out of darkness through uh, reproof of loving and faithful brothers who have a high view of God and a high view of His Word, the aim should be to bring the light of the Gospel to bear upon the individual as they see their sin and they walk in repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures are sufficient and are the standard for this type of work. So the Scriptures are profitable for teaching, they're profitable for reproof, they're also profitable for correction, which is to be reformed, is what that word means. It literally means restoration to an upright state. It's to set straight. One has gone crooked, and the straightening for the one who's gone crooked requires the unchanging Word of God. right? The Word that doesn't bend or break because it has God as its author. Right? To be corrected by the Scripture is to be instructed to establish a, a, uh, a, a God-centered reformation, if you will, upon being convinced of sin or of one's ignorance con- concerning the Word of God. Right? Correction can be, maybe it's not so much about personal sin to be repented of, but maybe uh, just as Apollos in the New Testament need to, needed to be instructed in, in clearer ways and in his humility, he, re, he repented of his ignorance, if you will. Right? Maybe some of us have a long-held, closed-finched be, uh, uh, beliefs we're holding in, 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 in our hands. And, and maybe through humility, uh, we can open-handedly 
um, not see changing as a threat to our existence, but as a way to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God through the washing of the Word. Right? So the Scripture is sufficient to be cor- corrective. And then training in righteousness. Right? We see that the Scriptures, because they're God-breathed, are profitable or sufficient for training in righteousness. This means that one is to be educated in such a way as to increase Christ-focused virtue. One is to be educated in such a way as to increase Christ-focused virtue. This stands in stark contrast to the ever-changing worldliness of non-believers and those that are influenced by non-believers. We've redefined virtue in our day and age, and we've used it uh, to dress up vice. But people who are by the power of the Holy Spirit, God-trained to be um, to, 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 to know the Word, right? They're, they're trained in the Scripture, can spot virtue, can spot vice, and can grow in their affection for virtue because at the center of virtue was Christ Himself, who's the only virtuous person to have ever lived. But to be trained in righteousness, right, is to, for us to be reminded not, not, not just instructed to walk in the way of righteousness, but to be reminded as we were at the confession of sin, assurance of pardon section, that we're clothed in the righteousness of God, which we need every day. Right? We forget we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we're to be reminded through the Word that there's a standard in which we're called to walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And all of this is done ultimately for the glory of God and for our good for our good, and we see this, the so that, right? So that the man of God may be complete for every good work. A ministry that's unashamedly committed to God and His Word produces a complete man of God, a fully furnished Christian, a thoroughly perfect man is kind of what the text is getting at. One who who has what he needs to live in light of Christ's finished work. One who's submissive and willing to participate in God's plan for the cosmos, to, to bring the world in subjection to King Jesus. This man will have the aroma of Christ. This man won't be easily discouraged or given over to despair or wallow in self-pity. This man won't be easily entangled by the snares of this world. This man will have what he needs. There will be contentment in the Lord, one that can't be snatched, one that can't be taken away. This man will find his delight in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1, 2. He'll be equipped He'll be equipped. This is what a commitment to God and a commitment to His Word does. This is the promise to a pastor and to a church committed to His Word. This is the promise to an individual Christian committed to God and His Word. And my prayer is, and, and I hope our prayer is collectively, is that Deer Park Fellowship will internalize the Word of God spoken through the apostles and and be a church with this type of commitment, with this type of perspective. So, a few takeaways for us this morning, and and I have these down in your uh, your guide, your worship guide. If the scriptures 
are necessary for our salvation. Uh, Clark asked me to shorten these takeaways, so there you go. If the Scriptures are necessary for our salvation, sufficient for life and godliness, and complete in their revelation, this means that the God who authored them will preserve them. Matthew 24, 35. The 1689 says, By His singular care and providence, the Scriptures kept pure in all ages. This means that what we hold in our hands are the words of God. Therefore, as the only sufficient authority, we must appeal to them with all their words and with all their definitions in the shaping of our lives and in all conflict and controversy. We must appeal to them with all their words and all their definitions in the shaping of our lives and in all conflict and controversy. All right, take away one. Secondly, a verbal assent to the Scriptures isn't the same as a commitment to the Scriptures. A verbal assent to the Scriptures isn't the same thing as a commitment to Scripture. Even the demons believe, James 2, 19, a commitment to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture is demonstrated in your resting in the finished work of Christ and in how far you're willing to go to live in submission to it. Third, All of Scripture is about all of Christ for all of life. You like that one, Clark. And then fourth, the Scriptures rightly instructed produce fully furnished men and women of the faith. So with that said, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, I pray that as a church we would grow in our commitment to it. God, we're not as committed as we should be to it. But day by day, by your grace, Lord, I pray that I as a pastor would grow in my commitment to it. I pray for our elders, Lord, that we collectively would grow in commitment to it. I pray for our deacons that we would grow collectively in our commitment to it, Lord. I pray for us as a congregation, Lord, that we would grow in our commitment to it. And Lord, we we ask for that. Because you created this world, Lord, and you've declared how it's to function. So God, help us to repent of our low view of you and our low view of your word, God, and help renew in us a vigor for truth, God, because of our love and affection for you and because we know that a commitment to your word is the only way that you reconcile people to yourself. And we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a guest with us, this is the time in our service where we...